Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. From the Headstuff Podcast Network, welcome to Mother Folklore, podcast of words, Irish, Irish words, and words from Ireland. I'm Derek O'Shea. And I'm Garoji McAvoy. Hey, getting on, Garoji? Yeah, I'm good. It's it's almost Halloween, um, my favourite time of year, so I'm very excited for a spooky season. Oh yeah, I love spooky season. I just, yeah, I I love Halloween. I love the the annual poppy debates and I love my birthday. No one loves the annual poppy debates. (laughs) That's how you know Christmas is coming, isn't it? (laughs) Oh God, yeah. No, I think, yeah, I'd I'd rather listen to, um, yeah, I'd rather rather listen to Christmas songs over and over again. I'd rather have the uh, the annual Is Die Hard a Christmas movie debate than the poppy debates. But they are perennials, you know, it's a, but a better perennial of the Autumn Stroke Winter in Ireland is the Irish Book Awards. And we're absolutely delighted today to be joined by a nominee for the, in the Irish Book Awards this year in the Crime Gallery, although she wouldn't be some normally seen as a crime writer. She's one of Ireland's most outstanding novelists. Every book she writes is as meticulously plotted and carefully constructed as a Swiss watch. I just think she's brilliant. <laughs> do you think she's brilliant, Gergie? I do. I'm a big fan. This is a very big deal for me. Thank you for having me on this particular episode and I'm going to try and play cool for the next hour <laughs> to 40 minutes. <laughs> I am, of course, referring to Louise O'Neill. Oh, that was a very nice introduction and an, ex- <laughs> and an excellent segue there. I was very impressed by how you did that. Can we I'm mark just, this as the first time that anyone has ever complimented Derek's segways? Because sometimes they're like weaseled right in there. He's got a, a hammer and like <laughs> several tools, power tools to wedge his point in. No, I, I, you, you got a sag in command of these things. It's a, it's a skill you learn as a middle child. Oh. Um, <laughs> please, I am I'm currently I'm enthralled by your new book, After the Sounds. Oh, thank you. Um, I always get a little bit nervous when I hear um, that someone who, you know, is a, speaks Irish fluently is reading it because I'm like, oh God, I hope that they they think the Irish is okay. But, it, you know, I, I did actually get like a very good friend of mine who is um, a native Irish speaker. I got him to translate it for me. So if you have any complaints, <laughs> you direct them to Traina Kabukula, okay? Oh. <laughs> um, no, this is a safe space. We won't have any criticisms on that. Okay. No. But it's it's for for those uh, for those of you who haven't heard yet, yeah, after the science is set on an island called Inishroon, off the coast of Cork, mm-hmm. 
or you might say that um, to, to to make a reference. So recently, and recently in one of our episodes, um, Patter mentioned that he's a friend from Ackle who refers to Ireland as an island off the coast of Ackle. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> <laughs> this is fantastic. So, but Inishroon uh, is this is an island off the off the coast uh, of of Cork, and there's. And I, some years back, there, a murder happened there. And when the when the when the, when there was at the night of a large storm, without giving anything away, so you and, and we look we and and we are we are, we are drawn to the story of all the people who were involved who were on the island of the, on that particular night who how, who was affected and how different people's lives touch each other. And it goes into many of many of the themes that you you address in your work in in, in different genres. You do return to some certain themes like uh, consent, control. Um, uh, power relationships mm. and and the and, and the and the idea and living with with trauma and it's absolutely fascinating work oh thank you that's for, that's very kind of you could you could you maybe tell us a little bit about the process of of writing uh after the silence um mm. which i haven't read yet it's on my christmas list my mom told me not to buy it yet <laughs> sorry that's why i haven't read it <laughs> um well you can tell your mother i said thank you very much yeah. as well um and uh yeah i mean you know I suppose when um, 2018 was a particularly busy year for me because I had two novels out, one in March, um, Almost Love, and one in May, The Surface Breaks, which was a feminist retelling mm-hmm. of The Little Mermaid. And then the stage adaptation um, of Asking For It uh, deb- debuted yes. in uh, June. And I had sort of decided that I was going to take an extended social media break and I really just wanted to just get back to the actual writing because I think that, like... A lot of the work, you know, particularly when, you know, you're in publication is is the publicity and, and you know, is doing, you know, the podcast, which I enjoy. Um, <laughs> but, you know, also, I suppose, you know, the interviews and the media um, and it, it, it tends to be quite noisy, I suppose, would be the way I would put it. Um, and I just wanted to just get back to the actual writing. And I didn't know what I was going to write about. And I went to um, Anna McCarrick, which is this writer's retreat centre um, in Monaghan. And I had been listening, uh, well, I had listened earlier that year to the West Cork podcast, um, which I think most people in Ireland will be familiar with because, you know, it's about the Sophie Tuscan de Plantier case, which is obviously one of the most notorious unsolved murders uh, in this country's history. But having been from West Cork and, you know, I was 11 when that murder happened, I think it left such a long shadow um, on the people of West Cork. Um, and I think as a child growing up in an area like that, where you were afforded so much freedom, like I didn't even know where the front keys to our house were, you know, yeah. um, because crime was just non-existent. Um, so I think it was just this really quite traumatising event, actually. Um, and so I, I was really excited to, I don't know if excited is the right word, but I was really anxious maybe to listen to the West Cork podcast. And I think... A part of me, I think, hoped that like that the two documentary makers would have solved the crime, you know, mm. um, and like that kind of childlike part of me. And of course, obviously, you know, things aren't tied up as neatly uh, in real life as they are in fiction. But I think afterwards, I just kept thinking about it, and it, it wasn't necessarily the case itself. I think it was more the idea of the outsider mm. and the Sassanok, you know, like the dreaded Englishman. And I suppose that kind of post-colonial tension between Ireland and, and the UK, which which was, 
I think sort of bubbling under the surface and then I think Brexit sort of brought it all back up again mm. and so I was really I just mm. couldn't stop thinking about that and then these two documentary makers who also had English accents you know coming into this very small tightly knit community um, and asking questions and, and I just thought god this is just ripe for like creative um, exploration and I suppose then, you know, I, the reason why I decided to, well, actually there was a number of reasons why I decided to set it on an island. Um, but I suppose the main reason was that when I was a child, my parents took us to Cape Clear mm. and we actually missed the last boat home. Um, and I remember feeling really panicked, which was so ridiculous because obviously like we just found a and b and like went home the next day it was not an emergency you know um but I remember having just this real sense of panic because I think it was the first time that I really realized oh we can't get off this island like you know it it was this sense of being completely trapped um by the water and and I suppose when you grow up in an again when you grow up in an area like that we live by in Shidani and my father was always telling us you know you, you have to respect nature and you have to respect the sea and the sea gives but it takes away and and I suppose when you when you're hit sometimes you know I suppose by the reality of what it means uh to live in such an isolated area that it doesn't matter what sort of technology or you know what modern advancements there are like that that nature in and of itself is the most powerful force um, that exists. So there was just a few different things that I kept sort of coming back to and and playing around with, and and I thought, yeah, you know what, I'm gonna I'm gonna set it, um, I'm gonna set it on an island, um, and you know, I suppose as well as that kind of Agatha Christie, you know, the closed door um, narrative, you know, that mm. like you're on a train or you're in a country house in the middle of a snowstorm, and it's like no one can get on, no one can get in, no one can get out, so it has to have been someone here who did it. Um, mm. So I thought that like there the an island really is like the ultimate form of that. I was I was really thinking of that, the Agatha, Agatha Christie situations on the the idea of the of the island, particularly in the storm and the the ferry not being able to go either way mm. on the night of the of the incident. And it's and yeah, it, it's really fascinating. Then you found like, did you find that? I suppose did you um, when once you decided you're going to set it on an island? Did you start researching what how islands have been treated in Ireland or how what island life has been and how islanders have felt? Um, I, I did. Um, mm-hmm. I suppose actually this book, I think I, I did the most research that I've ever done with any novel because there were so many different strands to it. You know, there was island life. There was, you know, the domestic abuse and coercive control angle. Um, there was also, I suppose, just the the fact of like the murder. How would that happen? How would the guard investigation go? How long would the legal process take? You know, like what would the what would the anonymity be like? You know, I, I spoke to the former state pathologist of Ireland to like get her take on, you know, what what would her role in that have been? Um, so I think like the the research was enormous to the point where I was like, okay, for the next book now, I'm just going to write something <laughs> about, I don't know, a, a, a writer in her mid-30s who lives in a small town in Ireland, you know, um, that requires no research whatsoever. Um, but the island um, aspect of it, I did find really interesting. You know, my our next door neighbours here... Um, it, my we moved to this house when I was four and the family next door had two girls as well one who was two months older than my sister and one who was two um, months younger than I was so we sort of instantly became best friends um, and I used to sort of dread the summers because they would go to Inishir 
um, they would take a house in Inishir for about a month. Um, and when we were teenagers, my best friend Anya kept going. Like she would, she loved Inishir and she would go out to Inishir um, every summer for as long as she could. And she actually ended up meeting um, her now husband, uh, who is from Inishman. Um, and they live in they live in Galway, so I've never quite forgiven him um, for taking <laughs> her away. But it's funny. Um, so I suppose there were, you know, so I was. She would have told a lot of stories about what what it was like to be on the island, and I suppose she was almost like kind of accepted as one of them, you know, mm. by the end. Um, and I would, uh, Bertie, her husband is is so interesting because. You know, I would re- I would ask him loads of questions. You know, I'd be like, "Well, what was this like?" And 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 he doesn't think it's interesting at all, at all because obviously, <laughs> if you've grown up, you just think it's so normal. And why would anyone care about this? Um, whereas I'm I'm always just tormenting him, like asking him like just questions about like his childhood and and what it was like. And you know, and he's a, he's a fisherman, and you know, what was that like? And I th- he he tolerates me, but. Um, <laughs> uh, so I suppose I, you know, so I obviously I spoke to him. I spoke to um, Anya's, one of Anya's uh, closest friends in the Sheer. I spoke to someone from um, the Iron Moor. I spoke to a couple of people from Cape Clear. Um, I spent a good bit of time on Cape Clear. Um, because I suppose physically that was the island that was closest to Inishroon. Mm. Um, and I did a lot of reading because, you know, I wanted, I suppose, just to get a sense of what, the islands were like in the 70s and the 80s and um and you know was obviously Keelan um would have been a child at, at that point um and you know when did the Irish colleges um start up and when uh did they get first get electricity and 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 just this was to as you said there of Derek that idea of the way in which they were treated um and how so often that they needed an advocate um and that would tended to have been the parish priest um and i i just i found it really really interesting because it did feel like i suppose a world apart from ireland itself um, and, you know, I would have read a lot of um, Eilish Dillon um, as a child. And, and I remember I, I did um, a module in children's literature um, in in college. My parents were thrilled. I'm like, we're doing picture books this week. They're like, oh, that's a great use of our money. <laughs> Enjoy that. Um, but um, I remember, you know, the lecturer talking about Eilish Dillon and saying that, you know, the way in which um, she describes the relationship between Ireland and the offshore islands can often be looked at as almost like a microcosm of the relationship between Ireland and um, the UK or between Ireland and England. Mm. And I suppose, again, I thought that was really interesting, tying into those concepts of that post-colonial tension. Um, there just seemed to me like there was a lot of really rich material that I could play around with. Um, and I think as an author, that's kind of, that's always what you're looking for. Yeah, I think that's really interesting because we actually mentioned in our recent episode where we talked about Peg, obviously there was a lot of discussion about islands there and we talked about post-colonialism as well. And I think it, it's actually, from what I understand from what you're saying, it's it's actually kind of connected, I suppose, to the post-colonial relationship we talked about between, I suppose, Dublin-based Irish or the attitudes mm. that we have about Irish and then it being part of an old way of life versus mm. people who say lived on the Blaskets like Peg did and who spoke that way and how people in power shall we say and people in like urban centres just didn't understand or didn't respect 
the way of life of people. So it became sort of mm-hmm. like a joke that, mm-hmm. um, you know, peg is a joke or um, do we have a peg jar for me for every time I mention peg? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, um, I was actually, I was on the Blasket Islands um, this summer and we got a tour and it was actually really interesting, you know, when he was talking about, I suppose, how the storytelling tradition was so strong in these islands because mm-hmm. so often the, the schools that were there were, were they were forced to to learn through you know through English yeah mm-hmm. and again I suppose there's that kind of resentment almost you know and um, I'm I'm studying I mean I'm trying I'm taking Irish lessons um at the moment That's fantastic oh Jesus anyway we'll, we'll see <laughs> um, and you know there is kind of a sense of I probably I shouldn't really have to learn this mm. you know mm. like I should know how to speak this language and you know you don't want to be it's 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 very interesting because I think for years I really I I do think there has been a shift over the last while because I think that when I was a teenager like the idea of even nationalism or sort of like caring about being Irish or speaking Irish in that way was not really a thing do you know mm-hmm. um and i think it's even fascinating to see it was the shift in way young in the way that it's a young irish people view Sinn Féin which would have been very different to yeah. how i would have sort of been brought up to see it mm. um and i don't know so it's, i suppose it would never really have occurred to me to have felt resentful over the fact that i couldn't speak irish um and that has definitely i think been something new yeah. um and I, I i do think it's it's probably been heightened when you i think a, a lot of the rhetoric around um, around Brexit was yeah. this sort of like, will the Paddies please just, you know, know their place and, and settle down a bit and sort of do what they're told. And I think it's sort of, um, there's probably you know, like that idea of like inherited trauma or like, yeah. you know, ep- epigenet- epigenetics. I'm like, it's probably just there, like deeply buried within my DNA. And now all of a sudden it's kind of rearing its ugly head. <laughs> Yeah, because we actually talked about something, or, 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 I think we talked about it in the podcast a while back, Derek, something similar about this and how there was like, do you, I, I remember being, because I, I went to UCC and I was in Cork the time that the Queen came to visit. And that was probably yeah. like the height of like Anglo-Irish relations. Mm. It was really, she was really yeah. popular. The whole feckin' city shut down. Like I couldn't get in or out of University Hall because yeah. there was a motorcade. It was, yeah, madness. But it's, yeah, to see a change, so- like... I think that was around 2011. I remember yeah. it was a few days before or after Barack Obama came and people were saying it was a bigger deal. And because we, you know, we'd had lots of presidents by about that stage yeah. in living memory and visit. But then, it, and people, you know, like, you know, they were sharing online that this is their proudest day for being Irish ever. And they were saying, you know, very unguarded things. And people were very affectionate towards the royal family and Britain mm-hmm. in general. And we felt we, we, we had come on a hard journey. But, mm-hmm. And then Brexit made us realise that was a one-sided journey, I suppose, for a lot of people and that there hadn't been a similar kind of um, uh, inner reflection. And Mm. I think there was, so. I I do think possibly the sense of embarrassment at how proud we were at, you know, opening up to to the UK may have have led to some of the the acceleration of anti, of maybe critical feelings towards Britain or England, certainly. Anyway, and West Cork famously has had a large um, English population mm-hmm. of English often maybe who who see themselves as, as creative and hippie-ish and don't yeah. see themselves as <laughs> and don't see themselves as part of a, of an English mindset. Yes, I mean that is very funny. Um, we knew what gentrification was before anyone else did. Um, <laughs> but, um, uh, yeah, I mean sometimes it's very funny. Like 
you know, I, I was in the supermarket a, a while back and I, I actually put it into the book because it made me laugh so much. And there was this, they were sort of young, quite posh, you know, English, and they were wearing like hunter wellies and these sort of tweed capes. Mm-hmm. And it just made me, it just, honestly, I just thought, thought like, I wonder, do you wear those at home or are these your Irish clothes? <laughs> <laughs> I know, like, I mean, you're like, oh, we're back in the old country now, but I put on the tweed, you know? And, and uh, it just, there's something about it that's very funny. And, but yeah, no, I suppose, and actually I think that was one of the reasons in a very strange way why with um, Sophie that you know with Sophie's death Mm -hmm. that it was such a a hard thing to reckon with as well because actually I think when you grow up and I keep saying when you grow up in an area like West Cork but you know that's that's stuff that I'm dealing with in the book but you are sort of taught whether consciously or not that there's a certain way that you behave in front of foreigners or blow-ins or particularly tourists you know that mm-hmm. they yeah. you know like it's really like the Cade Mille Falta and you have to sort of be very friendly and very welcoming and you know because I think that money was always so important you know particularly before like you know in the like before this was the Celtic Tiger really sort of exploded um so there was a sense of I suppose having to be having to be nice or, you know, having to sort of put on that face a bit um, and sort of play the part. Um, and I think that, you know, it was so shocking then when someone who has come here and had thought of West Cork as a refuge and had chosen it as um, as someone to, as somewhere to sort of use it as, as a retreat um, to see something so horrifying happen here. And, you know, ultimately I have no idea, you know, who murdered her. Um, but I suppose it is striking in a way that, that the person that people decided very quickly, you know, was the person responsible, wasn't someone from the area. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I wonder in a way, you know, whether rightly or wrong, again, I have to reiterate, I literally haven't, I mean, I, I haven't, and I don't have any theories. I, I really don't. Um, and I think even listening to the podcast made me realise how little I knew about something yeah. I thought I knew a lot about. But, uh, you know, I wonder in a way, is there, is it easier, you know, to to see this as something that only happened with outsiders, you know, that, that it wouldn't, it couldn't have happened um, with people who grew up in that area. I don't know. Um, but it, it did strike me, I suppose. Um, it just struck me as, as interesting. Um, yeah. But, you know, West Cork has always been a really popular um, place for, as you said, hippies and, uh, and artists. You know, whether that was, I suppose, them wanting solitude or wanting to take advantage of um, the tax <laughs> situation <laughs> here. Um, you know, I don't know. And but I've, and I and the thing is, is that I've always loved that. Um, yeah. You know, I, I always thought there was like my parents would have gone, would have been, even though they're not creative, would have been friendly with a lot of those people. And, you know, they would have told very funny stories coming home after parties and being, you know, saying that this had happened or, you know, someone had been smoking this or, you know, mm-hmm. and it always, I suppose it just, it just struck me as, I, I don't know. I, I think I was kind of enthralled by it. Um, mm-hmm. And in a way, a lot of, as I got older and I wanted to become a writer, I think a lot of, I, I actually had to struggle with that sort of sense of, but that's not for people like me. You know, that's for those people, the kind of the bohemians, you know, the ones who live on Cool Mountain, the ones who live off the grid and grow their own yeah. food and their own weed and their own whatever, you know, that's not really for the likes of us. Um, 
so I suppose it's interesting. You would think that maybe growing up and being around um, a lot of of creative people, that like, you would think that it would have given me a sense of permission. Um, and in a way, I think I had to almost fight against that. But I think that's a really interesting point because myself listening to the West Cork podcast and then reading your own work is there's such this, there is this idea of the 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 blow-in is such a huge thing. And, and again, being from rural Ireland, okay, we didn't have very many people from like, outside of the country living in Timahoe but there was a lot of people who were like from Schlieve Bloom and they're considered blow-ins you know my mum has been living in my village for most of her life but is still considered a blow-in because she's from a different part of Leash you know and those things those distinctions are so important so like even though you're surrounded by those people there's still an inevitable us and them narrative I think working because Mm. that like you said that's for those different people who are creative and have permission but you have again, coming from rural Ireland, that sort of, that way of life that is more associated with the things that we do rather than the mm-hmm. things that they do. Mm. Yeah. And it's funny because my parents were like, yeah, of course, be an actress, be a writer, <laughs> do whatever you want. You're great. And I was like, oh, I don't know. I don't know. I, maybe I should become a teacher. And they're like, no, you'd be terrible at that. This <laughs> 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 is so funny. Like every, everyone else's parents are trying to get them to get a pensionable job. And mine, they're like, yeah, it'll be fine. <laughs> Hi, I'm Kate. And I'm Porig, and we host the Behavioural Vaccine Podcast. We're behavioural scientists who met through improv comedy. And so each week, we bring the two things together to explore how behavioural science can be applied, but in a fun way. There's a little bit of research. There's a good bit of messing. And there's loads of practical tips on everything from how to save money to how to maintain your friendships. Think about this like a behavioural vaccine to get you through winter 2020. Go on, sure, give us a listen. So it is interesting the way that I know when you were coming from a town when with that when there has been a very famous I guess a murder or missing person case and how every every new thing that happens is, is, is somehow linked to it. The I guess the way a community kind of kind of tries to process this something that that's terrible that's happened is oh uh, people fill yeah fill those gaps with um, with terrible things they fill the gaps with their own prejudices and their own um, anxieties. Yeah, I mean, I I thought that was actually very interesting listening to the podcast when they were saying about how, you know, because I suppose people are afraid as well. But I think this idea of people almost using it as a way to settle all scores yeah. and sort of whispering rumors into the, I mean, you you wouldn't, you couldn't, you couldn't make it up, mm-hmm. you know, like that kind of idea of saying, oh, that person has wronged me or this person, you know, uh, I, I don't know, like offended me in this way. So I'm going to like suggest to a guard that they like it's just it sounds like I don't know Stalinist Russia or something like it just is it's really wild um and I suppose you know in after the silence like I really wanted to explore that because I think what is so fascinating I suppose about the Sophie Tascon the Plantier case is I mean obviously the fact that it's unsolved and nobody knows you know the truth of what happened that night um except for you know whoever murdered her um but I suppose to have the person that people suspect to be the murderer still living in the mm-hmm. area, mm-hmm. Um, I, there was some. I mean, that is fascinating. Like, how do you process that? If if it was a member of your family, you know, I mean, um, Sophie's son comes back um, every summer um, and stays in the house and you yeah. know goes to school and and you know and it's like how how would you how would you even begin to to really 
cope and to heal um if you have to i suppose be confronted with the person you suspect has done this um and especially when it's such a small knit community because i think the thing is about living in a very small community is that there's a certain amount of cognitive dissonance that has to happen in order to exist alongside your neighbors like you know you you know certain things about people um and some of them are unpleasant um but if you see that person in the supermarket and they say hello i think there's also a, a level of how much effort is sort of you know you just kind of say hi and keep going um and i think there's something really in that mindset again I find really fascinating um and I just thought when I was put when I was um, basing it on that island I was like yeah I'm just going to make sure that the person that everybody on the island thinks has done this is going to still be living there 10 years later and while her family and her loved ones are trying to um like heal and process um, her murder that they're also I suppose trying to deal with like their anger and their fury directed at this person and a sense of like why won't you just leave like why won't you go yeah. No, I think that's really interesting in mm. terms of, again, these these because the relationships in in small communities. And I think you do it really well in your other books as well, like that, that explore these themes that like, uh, again, I was listening back to um, asking for it uh, over the week before this. And like it, even the way that people talk to each other, it's just so relatable, <laughs> like, you know, the way that people are kind of slightly awkward around each other and not saying anything, but saying everything at the same time. It's just because again, like you said, you have to live around these people. You are mm-hmm. going to bump into them. It's not like you're living in a city where you're not going to see that person again anytime soon. You know, it's it's a small area. You will bump into that person probably in the next few days, you know? A hundred percent. And actually, I think, you know, with asking for it, um, I suppose th- that was very much based on, you know, having conversations with my friends when we were mm-hmm. 16 or 17 and saying, you know, what would you do if you were raped? And most of us saying, oh, I just don't think I would do anything. And actually the reason was, was because like you would see them you would see them all the time and you'd be going to parties and they'd be there and then of course what would end up happening is that you wouldn't get invited to the parties because their friend was throwing it or you know because people move Mm -hmm. on very quickly as well and people forget Um, but you're still I suppose trying to deal with the the trauma and you're still holding that trauma Um, and sometimes I think in, in a small town you just want life to be easy yeah. Um, and it's not worth sometimes having like a disagreement with someone or a row with someone because of the sense of, of the energy that it's going to take to ignore them in the supermarket, to bump into them, you know, at, at church or at, sorry, at mass or at the in the pub or at, at you know, the local football game or whatever. Yeah. Um, so to me, I think it's a sense of living so closely with each other. Um, and what does what kind of cognitive dissonance does it take in order to to do that, to know certain information and to be able to, I suppose, put it aside in whatever way that you can in order just to to live? Yeah. And particularly, it's funny that you say that, like when you see there's I mean, at least in, in my community anyway, there's you know, the families that have had a feud, usually it's over land and like a brother yeah. doesn't talk to another brother. And like that just seems exhausting, you know, because they've been keeping that up for like, what, 40 years. Um, mm. I mentioned before we came on air that my dad's a postman and he said that it's a very different kettle of fish. Like when you're delivering post in a town, it's numbered houses. But when you're delivering post in a you know a rural area, you need to know all of the back roads, who has a vicious dog 
dog and what family mm. is feuding with what family because they likely mm. have the same address and maybe they're both yes. like P.O. Sullivan, like Pat and Paul, but you need to know which is going to Pat and which is going to Paul because, you know, they're never getting the post if they're having a feud. Oh my God, that is so funny. I, I, I do love though the Irish postal system. Like I find it whenever like an English um, publisher will say, oh, they want to send me a book and I'm like, okay, here's my address. And they're like, oh you forgot your house number and I'm like oh god I feel like you're saying listen you could put Louise O'Neill trying to kill to Ireland on it and it will get there because I'm the only Louise O'Neill who lives here so like it's going to be fine don't worry about it and they're yeah. like oh you know it's back and forth like oh you know the, the UPS really needs the house number I'm like I don't have one I'm sorry <laughs> yeah until we got those air codes did, did we all just make up a post a postal code for I mean, zero, it, zero, zero, like. yes, zero exactly but I will say like the air codes are amazing yeah they, they are, are, are yeah. amazing it's, it's such a brilliant system it took me a while to kind of get into it because i was like how dare they try <laughs> and put like a postcode and then i was like oh no, this is actually really useful so yeah. i got on board it's so funny that they they come up with this with the, with with our code they had to work out a system that that wouldn't affect property prices because they knew that if you actually had um, postcodes that had little blocks of areas in them it would affect you know oh, people, really? people yeah this, that, this is the big that. reason because of Dublin 4 and Dublin 6 and the idea yeah. that you have you have a lot of people you have a lot of people in like in yeah in, in maybe in, in in Dublin 18 who, who put down W6W and people in Dublin 6W see their Dublin 6 and and they were worried that having doing that on a national scale like are you in leash for or are you you know no, and, that is um, so interesting I never that, knew that, that and that's why so like I mean you have fairly random numbers the in Dublin you still have the the first kind of digits of the of the traditional postcode and then they go go from that for everywhere else it's mm. largely a random number two houses yeah. next to each other their post their air codes completely different fun times speaking of English publishers uh Louise I have <laughs> I'm, I've, I'm published by a by Hedda Zeus here in, in London and I know from having um, the, the editing process and I've had great insights and I don't think people thank sub-editors uh, enough for the work they do but sometimes I remember at one point there was a um, uh, there was I made a reference to James Connolly and there was a little note from uh, one of the sub-editors said can, can you put a footnote in here to explain who this person is for you English readers and I was like do you, what do you mean? Who's James Connolly? <laughs> James Connolly's James Connolly. But it's, it's particularly sometimes with Hiberno English, with turns of phrase, yes. um, sometimes there can be an interesting dialogue. Yes. Oh, there has been frequently. Um, oh, God. And she's so, I mean, she's brilliant. She's meticulous. Like, mm. she's really, really good at what she does. Um, and we have a really good relationship. And I, I, I just have so much time for her. But sometimes it is very funny because, as you said, there is a certain way of like saying things like, oh, you know, I will, yeah. Or, you know, like things like that that you put in. And she's like, well, will they or what I don't I don't get this and you're trying to explain to her like what this means or I remember um in Almost Love I think it was like they were going to the mart and she was like uh, what's the mart and I was just trying to explain <laughs> what's that what's the mart <laughs> yeah um and I'm trying to think oh yes with this one um Keelan is talking to her two best friends um Sean and Johanna um and she says lads and she's like oh lads I don't know what I'm gonna do and I got a little note back saying um she says lads here but she is also talking to Joanna who is a woman is this okay and I was like yes it's fine it's fine <laughs> so there was definitely things like that and also what actually was very interesting with this book was obviously there's quite a bit of Irish um, mm. sprinkled through it so I couldn't like I my friend um, Treylock who I mentioned earlier um, who is just 
a wonder and who was incredibly helpful like I would go back and forth with Trailock and I would say how do you say this is this okay what about this and then he um, proofread it for me and because I knew obviously I, I would need someone who had Irish to, yeah. to proofread those um, parts of it but I mean, a part that I even found quite confusing was um do you know, I suppose the idea of, let's say, a hula one or then ni hula one, mm. Um, mm-hmm. you know, and I was trying to kind of get my head around it and I had to get him to go through that really carefully with me because obviously then, you know, the copy editor is like, but why does she have a different surname to her father? Like, what's, you know, so you're trying yeah. to sort of explain, like, I, 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 and I had to get that very straight in my head as well. Um, and to get that spelling perfect, you know, so that like, you know, with the H or with the whatever that was sort of put in, um, that, that that was perfect so that, so that I could say to her, look, just don't correct any of the Irish because that is mm. that that's right at this point. Okay. That, that is absolutely right. So I think that obviously added maybe another, um, layer of uh, of difficulty for her with with this book um, but uh, yeah so because this was the first one I think you know there was a little bit in um, asking for it when she's doing her Irish classes but nothing yeah. nothing major um, but this was the first time where I suppose you know uh, Keelan has been brought up in an Irish speaking mm. um, household so I just thought it, it would make sense it wouldn't have made sense not to have included any do you know yeah. um, mm-hmm. and actually it was quite funny because I got a very good review in I think it was the Daily Mail. I can't remember. And then they said something about, but sometimes the Irish feels very tacked on. And I just thought, mm. what the fuck are you saying? <laughs> and it really, it really pissed me off because I just thought, I say, just because you don't understand what it means doesn't mean it's just tacked on. Yes. Like, you can be on the podcast anytime. <laughs> <laughs> it just, it really, and it's funny because normally, like, I don't really read reviews anymore because mm. I just don't think they're for me. Um, but, someone had sent me this and they were like oh this is a really good one and and I just read it and I read that bit and I just thought god that's really ignorant Mm. I just thought it was because like it it wasn't I don't know I suppose because I've been so careful with the Irish and wanting it to seem really natural and just the idea that oh it was it was a bit tacked on I was like no this is exactly how you know I have family who um my aunt-in-law is um is from Ballyfurter and would have you know would have been brought up uh, in an Irish speaking household like her mother actually would have yeah. wouldn't have the best English you know like isn't it was really that's all they spoke um, when they were kids so I have also seen the way they kind of go in and out of English and Irish when they're talking to each other and, and you know they will mostly speak Irish and then there'll be a sentence in English and they don't even know that they're doing it do you know that sort of and I'm sure you probably have the same experience where it's just kind of in and out and they are not even aware half the time when they're speaking one or the other I think um, and to me I think I really wanted that to be part of just of, of Keelan's character and the way that she would she would use a phrase here or she would use something here and when that when she was remembering her parents in particular that they would have spoken to her in Irish so it was important that I had like a couple of phrases you know not tacked on <laughs> but you know interwoven through the narrative in a way that felt this was um authentic to me it's funny I remember when my first book was coming out uh, and Lisa Cohen was talking to me uh, our mutual friend and she said you know Derek you, you, you know, people will say very nice things about your book but one review will have one ignorant comment and it'll be all you remember yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah. and it's and it- I try. That's honestly, Derek. That's the reason why I don't read them at this point mm-hmm. because um, you do sort of zero in, and I feel really bad because I wasn't very. It was a very good review, and it's always wonderful to be reviewed. And I'm, mm-hmm. I actually, I, I really, I'm always so grateful. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think maybe that if it had been a criticism of characterization, I think I 
mightn't have taken it as personally, but yeah. it just felt very again maybe it was that post-colonial kind of pushing mm. that button you know I just was like how dare mm. you yeah. um but uh but yeah I tend not to read the reviews and I I've stopped I did in the beginning and then I think I just stopped and I I just felt like they're not for me um I can't do anything now I, I I'm very open like I'm really good with engaging with criticism when I'm editing um but once it's published I can't change anything about yeah. it um and there's just no point and also I think you really begin to realize that like it's just one person's opinion mm-hmm. um, and if it had been another reviewer you could have got either a much better review or a much worse review um and I think that once you can sort of begin to distance yourself a little bit from it um it's it's much healthier and I remember getting upset about a review once that I felt really just didn't understand um it was about almost love and I really felt like I just didn't get the book and I remember my dad saying to me you know he was like you've been really lucky with reviews up until now you know I think it was the first time I'd ever had anything sort of negative and he said he was like you know, Louise if you believe the good ones you have to believe the bad ones as well so he said you're just better off mm-hmm. not reading any of them he said because it's other people's opinions and you've written the book you've done the work and he said it just let it you just have to let it go and it was very wise advice and it has been so much more comfortable with this book not reading the reviews and not like looking for not looking out for them and not you know like googling the book's name to sort of see what people are saying um it's honestly made the whole process so much more pleasant um so i think that's definitely what i'm going to do um, moving forward as well Ah, that's really good life advice though like you know not yeah. to let i remember going to an event and Bora carrington was there and he said that when he's doing a uh golf right that's what he does yeah um yeah <laughs> he, was, he was doing the golf and when he he's golfing he doesn't read anything about himself because he like he likes to set his own narrative so like yes. the only thing influencing what he does is his own um actions yeah oh, that was really cool um I, I should work on trying to do that in my in my life <laughs> well, it's a shame in some ways that you, you you'd like to be able to give some of the very the, the nice things people say the incur- you know the attention that the negative things but you're, you're dead right just focus on on getting getting yeah. things right yeah. for yourself and and, yeah. and there's plenty of other stuff to read particularly when you're researching next book um some people say research is a form of procrastination yeah <laughs> oh god I can't well I know when I'm starting something I mean I will find any excuse like I was started a, a new book recently and I was outside and my mother called to see me and she's like what are you doing and I was like oh I'm airing my winter coats and she's like why and I was like because I'm starting a new book and I really don't want to do any work in it and she was like you're so weird and I was like just I don't want to talk about it just give me love okay airing your winter that's a new one I, I haven't done that I forgot to laugh but airing your winter coats they were very one. musty okay I they believe you an I believe you <laughs> Um, just what you were saying there earlier, Derek and Louise, about um, Hiberno-English. Like, it's such a... Uh, I listened to the West Coast podcast, actually, this summer. I hadn't heard it before, uh, with my boyfriend, who's not Irish. And, like, there was a lot of things where, particularly the blow-in thing, where they, like, spent a lot of time explaining the blow-in thing. And I was like, they didn't explain it right. And then I explained it to my boyfriend in, like, my language. But I, I was actually... It was this... It's just Christmas gone. I was in um, the airport in Helsinki and I saw some of your books translated into, I think it was actually Swedish, not Finnish. But I was just wondering, like, I wonder how the Hibernia English and the Turner phrases is actually handled there because even things like 
again, I have been just listening to um, asking for it and there was a whole discussion about like watching The Late Late and I was like, how do you translate mm. The Late Late and the cultural mm. institution of The Late Late into another language? Like, I wonder, mm. you know, how that goes. Um, I mean, it is interesting when there are being translations. Like, you know, um, Foreign Rights for After, The Silence Haven't Been um, Sold Yet. Yeah. And I am very curious. I'm actually very curious to see what happens there because I do think it's probably one of my strongest books and I'm sort of looking now to see if there will be a reluctance to do it because it's so Irish or because of the Irish um, language through it but I know with some of the others um particularly like because obviously you know you don't really get asked when they're doing the foreign editions like you know they like because it's such an art form when they're translating it yeah Um, it is yeah yeah, like it genuinely is because they have to you know, it's not just like a direct translation because you have to make the book interesting. Like they're mm. rewriting it basically, you yeah. know, um, in, in their language. But I have found that when they've been translated in the States, like I've I've actually found that almost more interesting um, because of the manner, just the way that they approach it. You know, there's a lot of, it's actually quite, it's kind of condescending and towards American people because they'll say things Sorry, like... Sorry, so they like translated into like American English? Is that what you mean? Yeah, like you know, wow. some of the things like uh, there would have been, let's say now with the the GA selector, you know, yeah. and they're like, okay, we're going to put it as a scout. And I just said, look, I, I, I can't. I said, my dad will actually... <laughs> will just scout. And my dad will like, he won't ever recover from this. Like, and like they would say things like with you know presenter you know let's say with the late late the presenter they were like oh host and there were things like that I was like okay grand but some of it you just feel like saying you know let's say there's a a, a car park and they're like oh um, we have to put a parking lot or there's a footpath and they're like oh we have to put you know the pavement and I'm like they're not stupid (laughs) I just think and it's also what really frustrates me as well is that we consume so much American literature we consume so much American television and those allowances are not made for us because Mm. obviously there's an understanding that we will comprehend what's happening like the context of whatever the, the way the word is used or We'll work out you what know, bangs well, are. Yeah, exactly. hundred yeah. percent. You know, or like the sweater <laughs> and the jumper, and you know, all of those things. And like, uh, it's just it, to me that felt very. I suppose there was just this. I think I was like, I think you're really underestimating American readers' intelligence because I'm pretty sure that they'll be able to understand what a car park is. Like, I think it's <laughs> within the word itself. Like, it's fairly, it's fairly self-explanatory. Yeah. Um, so, so I did find that, um, I did find that really interesting. But actually, the book I'm writing at the moment is uh, is, has, is American. Like, it's set in America. It's got an American protagonist, um, and. It, it is, you know, because actually what I'm finding really interesting and I have um, a very close friend of mine is American and I've said to her already, I'm like, I'm going to need you to read this because I said most of the stuff I'm okay with because, again, having listened to a lot of, you know, we we watch American television, you know, mm-hmm. we, we listen to American podcasts. So I said, I, I feel like a lot of the language I'm okay with um, and also having lived in New York, you know, I think you, you get very used to saying things like, sweater or you know because they just won't you know like particularly I worked in fashion so let's say if I said um like 
suspenders you know that would mean a very different thing yeah. to me than it would to them or like if I said a jumper that would mean a very different thing you know so you kind of get used to you like you saying trash cans out of the bin or mail you know so I, I think I got quite used to using certain terminology because it was just easier rather than having to explain um, and but actually I, th- I said the thing that I'm concerned about is the hiberno English like is the sort of slight turn of phrase or the way that you would structure a sentence because um, I know even with my first novel, which was dystopian and wasn't set, it was kind of set in nowhere, really, you know, yeah. like a, kind of a, a, a wasteland of maybe what Europe has come to be in sort of, you know, hundreds of years. Um, and like my editor, who was Irish, would pick up certain things and she'd say, oh, you know, that's actually quite an Irish phrase or that's kind of quite an Irish way of structuring that sentence. Yeah. Um, so to me, that's probably the, the thing that I'm most concerned about, not necessarily the vocabulary, but just the way in which we mm. speak and, and the, the, the rhythm of the language um, that I think I'm just going to have to pay a little bit more attention to just to make sure that there's nothing too jarring in there. Yeah, it is such a thing like you don't realise like what's, you know, we live in a, a a bubble with it sometimes. I remember I was at a conference a few years ago and I was sitting beside a, a a woman from the UK who taught interpreting in Spain. And she was saying that when they got Irish students over, she was always like found the Hiberno-English working with it really difficult. And she mm. said she was talking about she was like, oh, they always they never know the opposite of um uh, to to plug in something and I was like what do you mean it's plug out and she was like yeah they all say that and I was like wait what's the word I was like I don't know what the correct one is and she was like unplug and I was like what what is plug out not a thing and she was like no no it's not correct English and I was like mm, I'll, I'll argue that one <laughs> well I think I think at this point I mean the, the European Union needs to cop on we're the ones who decide what's proper English now, now yeah <laughs> in the Maltese it's up to us now <laughs> before we wrap up Louisa we'd love to ask all our guests what their favourite Irish word is um you know it's funny because again with after the silence um they wanted to do like a little I there was a um like a, a book tour thing that I was a part of and they wanted to do a glossary of the Irish words and most of them were fine you know you're like but um it was really interesting trying to explain what like plumos means (laughs) you know like such a plumoser and when I was trying to explain it and it was so funny because obviously I don't speak Irish um, fluently you know I'm I'm taking classes with Gwail culture and they're brilliant but um because I really do want to be able to have just to, like I would love to have like a five-year-old's grasp of Irish you know that kind of I'm not like looking to be fluent but sort of like a really uh, kind of that level but it's actually it was the first time where I could say to someone oh there's not really a direct translation yeah. you know and I, it was something about that that made me feel like I was part of a club you know it was like oh there's not really a direct translation in English but I just love that word like I because it's one of those ones you know that you I suppose there's a few ones as well like I love Flahulok as well you know there's the, <laughs> certain ones that maybe that just would have been part of that, the way that we would have spoken at home um, but like don't be promosing me and don't be yeah. you know I just I, I absolutely adore that word yeah I love Irish words like that I'm working with my own work at the moment with the creator uh, in Schlieveen yeah and like amazing. they're so hard to try I'm like I'm trying really hard to explain it for a non-Irish based reader and it's so hard because they're so much better in Irish you know the, the English yeah. translations just don't do it justice <laughs> <laughs> And obviously the, the, the setting of your island, Inish Rune, Rune is a fantastic word. 
Yeah, I mean, it was so funny because, like, you know, it's one of those things where you're like, oh, that'll sound great now to the um, to the English. And then you're like, oh, but all the Irish would be like, oh, for God's sake, Island of Secrets. <laughs> this one, she's so lame. <laughs> <laughs> Particularly because yeah, it can mean promise or secret or love. Yeah. Uh, it's, just, it's, it's, it's got it all. It's, it's just a great word. It's oh, well, thank you, Derek. I will keep that for future interviews and pass that off as my own opinion. <laughs> Good stuff. And how, how's, how's the old Gael culture going? I, do you know what? It's really, I mean, it's quite humbling because I am very poor at it. Um, and there's this, there's, uh, you know, a few people in the class, um, a couple of Americans who are very good at it, which mm. again is annoying. Even though I, I, <laughs> I mean, very annoying, but I keep going like, but my accent is definitely better. Like, they might know all the vocab. You know, like, I'm so... I'm so petty, like it's terrible. Um, but um, no, I am. I'm. I am really enjoying it. Um, and I don't know. You know, it was one of those things. I think because of writing after the silence um, and having to ask Treylock for, you know, with help with the translations, and he would send me these voice messages. You know, um, explaining certain words or you know saying, "Oh, I think you should use this phrase," and. It, it just used to sound like music, you know, coming from his mouth. And I just thought, oh, God, I really wish that I could. I really wish that I could speak this. I wish that I had, you know, kept it up after school and that I hadn't just been so relieved to, you know, do my dating search and feel like oh, I'll never have to do this mm-hmm. ever again. And I suppose as well, you know, this year has just been the year of the staycation. And, <laughs> you know, I was, you know, around Dingle and Ventry and, Cape Clear and you know and West Cork and and I think you're in areas where you know that they are um Gweltux, um and it felt almost rude you know I felt a little bit like you know sometimes when you're abroad and you, you know whether that's uh, you know let's say Spain or Italy and you kind of expect people to speak English yeah and I felt a little bit like that I thought oh god I'm expecting people to speak English rather than making an effort to at least be able to have a very rudimentary um, conversation. Um, and, you know, I suppose the thing about the, the the girl culture is that, like, it is just about getting people talking. You know, they're not, like... There's been no mention of the Mo Canilac. I was very <laughs> relieved. Um, like, trauma after school. Um, but, you know, as I said, I just want to be able to be, like, you know, yeah, this, this is who I am, this is what I do, this, you know, like, just such basic just really really basic um conversation level but i don't know it's funny as you get older these things just start to feel more important um and i don't you know i know having you know lived abroad uh, the sense of being irish um Mm. and my sense of myself as an irish person became much more important than it ever had before um and i think now the the language um has you know, I think that's become... I always feel a bit weird saying that because you feel like you sound like one of those people who has, like, a, a tricolour, um, you know, on their <laughs> Twitter handle and is about to, like, launch into, like, a white nationalist rant or something. It's like, okay, I'm not one of those people, okay? But I just still think it would be lovely to be able to speak it. I hope it's a rewarding experience for you. I really hope that you, you enjoy it more than anything. Like, I mean, because I just love learning languages. I love all yeah. the people learning languages. <laughs> <laughs> Um, is there some voting that we can get involved with? Your book is nominated oh, for some yes. awards. We would oh my love God, to do that. I completely forgot about it. I was like, what voting? Um, <laughs> yes. Uh, so After the Silence has been uh, shortlisted for Crime Novel of the Year um, in the Irish Book Awards. Um, yeah, no, I'm, I'm 
thrilled you know as I said earlier I you know next year it'll be a sports book and the year after it'll be a cookbook I'm just trying to get one in every category um, as I as I go along but it really is I have to say like the I feel really honored because um crime particularly amongst Irish um, women writers over the last sort of like 10 years has just had this explosion like and the quality is so good so the other people in the category are amazing and I feel like a terrible imposter um, but I'm really thrilled that they've left me in for, for this year anyway mm. um, so yeah you know if you want to vote um, just go on to the I think it's on post um, the Irish Book Awards um, their website yeah. and uh, yeah you don't have to vote for me but there's loads of other great people on there as well but that was actually, do you know what? No, that was a very self-deprecating thing to say. And all, you know, I, I just feel like I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to do the Irish thing. I'm going to vote yeah. for me, okay? Guys, <laughs> I, it's been a tough year. I need this. Vote for Louise. She needs yeah. this. Yeah. That's, uh... <laughs> that you're like campaign slogan for president. No, vote for yeah. Louise. She needs this. <laughs> Um, no, that's wonderful, and we wish you all the best of luck with that. Um, oh, when thank is you so the, much. The awards happen just before Christmas, isn't it? December. Yeah, sometimes. so it's normally like it's normally this very fancy black mm. tie um, event, um, but obviously this year because everything is shit, um, that <laughs> will not be happening. So I think it's going to be a virtual. I, I actually don't really know much about how it's going to work. Um, yeah. So I'd say I would presume that they're going to let the people who've won know beforehand, um, so that they can get their speech is ready or yeah. I, I, I honestly I don't really know um, but uh, yeah it's a pity because it is normally um, and Derek you'll know this as well like it mm. is normally it's almost like the Christmas work party you know and, mm. and for people who work alone um, and by themselves it can be a very exciting sort of overstimulating experience to be in this room <laughs> full, of, of, full mm. of all these other people um, so it's a bit of a shame because it is sort of the opportunity that you have to meet up with people that maybe you haven't seen for a while um, so yeah. it's it's a shame but look this year has just been a series of disappointments so <laughs> this is just one of them you know I'm sure you can get dressed up and sit in the good room or something first yeah, you know God. Yeah? put on the uh, yeah, glad rags with, yeah with, and I, 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 at least I'll be able to wear my slippers with it um, <laughs> I know, which, is, which is a joy we had a Guardian you organised a virtual Rose Tralee with, uh, with Emer this year didn't you uh, well I can't take credit for that Emer organised it and I was robbed of the victory point that out there. <laughs> I made a dress out of a shower curtain and I taught people how to curl their hair with a GHD which I think is a very valid skill but that look, is, it's fine I'm over it very valid skill I'm very impressed <laughs> um, yeah it's fine I'm over it clearly <laughs> <laughs> Great stuff. So, Louisa, thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Yeah, it's wonderful. So, until the next time, it's a slant from me. A slant from me. And a slant from me. Am <laughs> <laughs> I allowed for that in there? Yeah, you are. <laughs> you are indeed. Remind yourselves. Thank you so much for joining us uh, today. Motherfucker is brought to you by the Headstuff Podcast Network. Thanks to Brian for doing our production and thanks to Kirsten Shield for doing our art. And we also want to say a special thank you to all of our patrons um, who help support this show. And if you want to contribute, you can visit us at www.patreon.com forward slash Derek. Fantastic. And our guest this week just wants to remind you one more time where you can get her books and where you can vote for her. Okay, well, the the latest book is called After the Silence, um, available in all good bookshops. Try and support a local independent one if you can. Um, and you can go and vote 
for the Irish Book Awards. Um, just I'd say if you Google that, you'll find it. So thank you so much. This has been a production of the Headstuff Podcast Network. As in, I'm just going to say my name because I wasn't, I didn't press record. Sorry, Brian. <laughs> okay. But, um, so I'm just going to say that my name is Gerodi McAvoy. Okay. Um, okay. And I'm Gerodi McAvoy.